Welcome to The Real Photo Show. My guest today is Alexandra Huddleston, who is a photographer, writer, and walking artist. I'll talk to Alexandra about her latest book, Traces of Time, Walking the Gardens of the Abbey of La Cambra in Summer. And that title is actually partially in French, but I thought I would spare you me trying to pronounce that. Uh, this is a handbound limited edition artist book. So Alexandra was born in Freetown, Sierra Leone, raised in Bethesda, Maryland, and Bamako, Mali. Her upbringing has led her to explore landscape and culture from an international and interdisciplinary perspective. Between 2009 and 2014, she walked thousands of kilometers on pilgrimage in Spain, France, and Japan, journeys that led her to her current walking art practice. She has won a Fulbright grant, and her work is in the collections of the Smithsonian and the British Library, and I believe in a lot of other collections as well, uh, which you can see in the show notes. And I mention all of this because some of this we do talk about in the show, and some of it we don't really get to in any kind of detail, but it was those pilgrimages that really changed the way Alexandra thinks about photography and about walking through a place as a means to understand it, experience it, but also maybe understand yourself a bit more as well. Uh, so we'll talk a lot about that. But before we do, Real Photo Show is sponsored by the Charcoal Book Club, a monthly subscription service for photo book enthusiasts. This month's book is Gondras by Jasper Bastian. Gondras, Land of the White Stork, depicts what remains of rural life in two post-Soviet countries where only birds can travel freely across the border. I'll be doing a little flip through that book on Instagram uh, very soon, but you can check out that book at charcoalbookclub.com. All right, everyone. Thank you for listening. Enjoy the show, and we will talk soon. Well, hi, Alexandra. Thanks for joining me today. It's great to be here talking with you, Michael. Yeah. So you're out in Santa Fe. That's right. Said. It's one of my favorite places, and it's also a, a real, real photo town. Yeah, it is. It is. It's um, it's it's a funny com art community because you have these amazing artists here, but you also have a lot of people, and I'll include myself in that. Who, when they're out here, we kind of like just hunker down in our studio and do work, mm -hmm. <laughs> and like uh, kind of hermits out here. So. You know, it's a little bit, it's like there's a community, but then everyone's also being a hermit at the same time. So yeah. that, that, could, that could be a little bit funny. I include yeah, I guess myself you in all, that. I so. guess you all try to come out when there's a show. <laughs> we show our faces <laughs> once in a while. Right. <laughs> well, why don't you tell us uh, about yourself and, you know, where you grew up? And you have a, a pretty interesting background from what I've read uh, and education and all. So, uh, yeah, tell us about yourself. Yeah, I'm definitely what some people call a third culture kid. And for me, what that means is that I'm American. My parents are American, but they were diplomats. They worked um, in embassies and mm. for USAID abroad. That explains so, a lot. Okay. Yeah, it explains a lot, <laughs> including how I sound on your podcast. And so I grew up between uh, the leafy D.C. suburbs and countries like Mali, Sierra Leone, Haiti, Madagascar. So wow. there's, there's a big kind of, a big range of influences and big uh -huh. contrasting influences uh, in my upbringing. I got my first camera, I was given my first camera when I was six and it happened to have been a Polaroid. I don't think that was happened. I think, I mean, I think that was a big part of 
becoming obsessed with photography, <laughs> the fact yeah. that it was a Polaroid. <laughs> My first camera was when I was eight and it was a 110 film camera. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But I was given it actually right before my family moved to Mali in West Africa. And so my first pictures were just like taking photographs with my new Polaroid of everything around me. And that has continued my whole life. And even in my archives now, I have albums and not so incidentally, I took uh, I made albums, you know, they were they were I used mass produced right album books, but I was still always taking those printing, having printed at that point, all the photos I took and making albums of them. Um, but those early albums definitely, you know, it's, it's an eclectic range. You know, you have the family vacation in Glacier National Park, and mm. then you have scenes of West Africa or Haiti or Mali. Mm -hmm. And I suppose, you know, you look back 2020 vision, I mean, there's kind of my career right there. Yeah, <laughs> I, I was going to say, you, so you started self-publishing when you were six. So. <laughs> so, you know, in, in, these, in these albums I'd make. Right. Um, but, you know, the intro, I, I like to mention this because although I was doing photography all the time and I was also doing art all the time, drawing, painting, always taking art classes, but I didn't take photography seriously as an art form until I went to university. Mm. And in college, I double majored. I decided to double major in, again, spanning the spectrum of, of <laughs> my interests, East Asian studies in this case, and studio art. And part of the studio art major, as I think is often the case, right? It was required to do a photo one class. At right. that time, it happened to be photo one in the darkroom, silver gelatin printing. This was at uh, Stanford. Yes, that was at Stanford, right. Mm -hmm. And that was just one of the requirements. So I didn't actually really want to take the class, but, <laughs> but I did as part of the major requirement. And at that time, I was exposed to the work of photographers who I'd never seen before. Uh, you know, Dean Arbus, Robert Frank, Lee Friedlander, all these great American photographers. And it just, it blew my mind. I mean, even mm -hmm. to this day, I can remember sitting in the library and looking at, at Robert Franks, the Americans, like literally my brain's exploded. <laughs> so I'm fl living through those pages because, and, and that's not an exaggeration because it really was like, wow, this thing that I've been doing compulsively, like since I was six years old, has this much potential as an art form. And here I am, I'm not even, I didn't even realize it until one of my last years at university. And I like to mention that because it, that wasn't that long ago, right? Mm -hmm. um, I guess it was around 2000, 1999, 2000. Yeah. And, you know, it just reminds us that common knowledge even now is that maybe photography isn't an art. Or I was playing with my niece at Christmas doing crafty things and she was like, she's five. She was like, oh, I knew you were a photographer, but I didn't realize you were an artist. <laughs> <laughs> You know, but, you know, I think I think a lot of photographers still are even a little uncomfortable calling themselves artists sometimes because it it seems in some ways less practical. I don't know. You know, I yeah, don't know what it is. I, yeah. I, I, I think you're right. I think you're right. Yeah. And part of my latter journey, I suppose, has been fully embracing the idea of being an, an artist, which we can mm -hmm. maybe talk about later on. But certainly taking my photography seriously happened at university when I was exposed to yeah. Those, those great artists, photographers. Yeah. Yeah. So just to back up a little bit, were both your parents in the diplomatic corps? Yes. Oh, yes. okay. So my mother worked 
for the U.S. embassies. Mm-hmm. And my father worked for USAID, the United oh, States yeah. Agency for International Development. And that's one reason that the list of countries I lived in when I was younger uh, is largely in the list of the 10 poorest countries of the world. <laughs> oh, wow. Right. Yeah. I mean, so a lot of exposure to other cultures, a lot of exposure to a lot of other landscapes, too, which comes into play in your work, obviously. But, you know, you come out of Stanford and is it photography then, you know, for you or or are you still practicing different arts? Uh, I'd say by that time it was photography. Oh, okay. And so when I left Stanford, I moved to New York City. And I suppose that's when my very eclectic upbringing (laughs) as a photographer began. I feel, looking back, that I've always had kind of one foot in the system and one foot out of the system Mm. um, of the, say, U.S. photo industry system. So when I was in New York, I actually worked at Deitch Projects, which is a high-end contemporary gallery for a couple months. I worked as admin at the New Museum of Contemporary Art, You know, paying the bills, but try to learn about the (laughs) art world. I was one of these um, darkroom assistants and teaching assistants at ICP, the International Center of Photography, for many years. Oh, well, that's a real experience. I would 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 do my day job, and then every night I'd run over there Hmm. and either work helping helping out in the gang darkroom or as a teaching assistant. I don't know if it's still the case, but at that time, they had an amazing system where if you helped out, you weren't paid, but you'd get credit on a card Oh, to okay. use the darkroom for free. Nice. Yeah. And, and in fact, there was kind of an underground system underneath the official <laughs> system because all of us unofficial ICP photographers knew each other. <laughs> when we'd use the darkroom and we'd hand, in my case, it was the wet darkroom. You could also use the digital darkroom. Uh, as well. But I, for many, many years, I was a black and white, wet, dark room woman, actually. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Although you wouldn't, might not guess that, guess that for what I'm doing, but I did all that <laughs> to the extent that um, I actually can't anymore. It's, I'm too sensitive to the smell. But I mean, this is years, years. I spent hours yeah. in the wet, dark room. Yeah. So you'd go, you'd use it for like 10 hours or maybe less, mm-hmm. maybe more like six. And you'd hand your card over. And the person at the other side of the desk, who was also part of the same system as you, <laughs> would would punch it for two hours. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's funny. So it was a little little trading, a little bartering, a little... Yeah. But, I, you know, there's so many photographers like myself that, you know, living in New York City, that's what made us be able to do it, frankly. Mm-hmm. That's what made us be able to do it financially. Oh, absolutely. I'm sure. So, yeah. No, I well, when I was an undergrad... One of my three jobs was was working in the equipment room at the School of Visual Arts, so I could have access to the dark room in off hours and other times because right. you know I I was working so much. So I, I figured you know one of my jobs might as well actually two of my jobs. So one of my jobs might as well be you know with the dark room and the equipment, so I have access to everything. And and if you could hold your craft, you need those hours. Mm-hmm. I mean that's just how it is. Yeah. So yeah. I was an ICP photographer but not part of their it's not like i could put it on my cv you know <laughs> I, didn't, I was never part right. of their official program oh right but at least you got the dark room <laughs> right right but my, so my early photographic actually my very early photographic work right after college which is not actually out there in the world because uh, it's such early work is 
actually very linked to what I'm doing now, interestingly mm. enough. But I should say that in 2003, my, my career direction for a while, for several years, maybe seven years or so, took kind of a, a detour. Um, because the job I had at that time I was actually working as a photo editor for Corbis on their news desk. Oh, Corbis. Wow. I yeah. know, as I said, it's been a mashup here. <laughs> yeah. And it's not necessarily on my CV. And at that time, so I was the intake editor for all the news photos. And that was 2003 during the Iraq war. Oh, okay. So every day I was seeing these crazy pictures that I'm not saying they were censored. They, were, they weren't sen being censored, but nobody was putting them on the front page of newspapers. But I saw them every day. That was my experience at that time. And especially because I had experience growing up uh, in Muslim countries like Mali, yeah. I was really, you know, disturbed by the Islamophobia that was happening at that time. Mm -hmm. um, and the other, other things, you know, in the air around the war. And at that, so at that time, my, my work really switched directions and, and went towards much more hardcore documentary photography and journalism. I, I don't regret that decision. And it, I had some seminal experiences along that journey, you know, including living in Timbuktu, Mali for a year oh, and wow. doing, doing a project of the traditional Islamic scholarship in Timbuktu. People who know my career from early on, that's what I'm famous for, actually. Is oh, okay. So just to put it into context, were you at Columbia University at this time or this is... Well, that was right. Uh, so right after Corbis, I went to Columbia. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I, it was a year program and I studied journalism. I did not study photography right, right, at Columbia, right, right. actually. Print even. journalism. Yeah. So, broadcast that, and print that journalism. Was, it was that, yeah, yeah. I knew I wanted to do photography, but I wanted to learn the journalistic skills. And that was part right. of this like detour, which was, I didn't think was a detour at the time. Right. I yeah. thought it was, I'm seriously, I'm <laughs> going to be a photojournalist. So yeah, let's yeah. study journalism. Right. Yep. You know, uh, a question I did forget to ask when I when I went back to your parents, what are they thinking about all of this as your career? I, I imagine in the fields that they're in, they may have a more sort of open idea about what a career is, you know, compared to maybe some <laughs> well, other parents who have more traditional work. Yeah. My parents have always been very, very supportive. And I'm incredibly grateful for that because I could not be where I'm at now without that. Mm. I used to be hesitant to say, but I mean, full disclosure, I live with my mother. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and the reason I have this studio that you're seeing behind me and that I've been able to build my art to where it is now is because of the support of my parents. And you know, I mean, that's just the reality of American artists mm -hmm. um, that the system does not give us opportunities and support like other countries have. Right. And, you know, I'll mention later on, but eventually as a mature, even after I went through this whole journalism phase, I, I really decided to move back towards a fine art direction. And part of that was going to graduate school. And I decided to go to graduate school in Scotland um, mm. at the Glasgow School of Art. And one thing about that thing is I learned firsthand how much more opportunities my peers in Europe have than American artists. I mean, it, it's, it's everything, right? They're they're, they don't go into debt for their education. They don't right. have to worry about healthcare, right? Right, uh, right. In a city like Glasgow, I mean, some people might think, oh, amazing, you, you know, how privileged you went to study abroad in Glasgow. Actually, <laughs> the cost of my master's in Scotland is probably <laughs> half or a third what I would have paid in the US, sure. actually, especially because of the 
exchange rate at that time after Brexit. But um, rent for, you know, a rundown but decent apartment shared with one other student, 10 minute walk from school was $350 a month <laughs> in Glasgow. Oh, yeah. So, you know, you think about yeah. it. My, peer, my peers there who I graduated mm-hmm. with, you know, in 2018. Yeah. Those who stayed there, they can work part time, two, three days a week and basically pay their expenses and do their, their art with mm-hmm. all the rest of their time. I think I was already paying <laughs> like $1,700 a month in Brooklyn in 2002. Yes, <laughs> yes. So when I was younger, I think I was a little bit ashamed when I said, I'm, I'm living in my family home. <laughs> but mm-hmm. the more you understand fundamentally the ec- economic reality of what it, the situation the artists have and yeah. you know how much time and effort you have to put in just to build your career, at this point, yeah, this is my situation. Um, <laughs> my parents have been incredibly supportive. They certainly haven't understood what a career in the arts has meant um, mm-hmm. all, all that much. Because when, you're, when you work for the foreign service, your career is your life. Not only are you a, bu- a bureaucrat who has all of the, you know, everything that bureaucrats get, pension and health insurance mm-hmm. and everything like that, but your whole social life actually is your work when you work in the embassies abroad. Oh, you're right. Your circle of friends, your everything, right? Yeah. Right. And it's really a, a hierarchical career path, hmm. um, maybe even more than others, maybe even more than being a doctor or something. Hmm. So, you know, this kind of freelance, figure it out yourself, <laughs> art career path has definitely been alien to them. And, and also in, in the work that they did, a lot of the decisions about what they were doing and where they were going weren't even their own, right? Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yes. <laughs> So you you do go to Glasgow and you get your master's of letters in fine art practice. And so let's let's start talking about your your work a bit. The work that is on your site, uh, the work that you're known for, does is that coming out of that program? Do you start there? No, no. So yeah, I, I, the story that comes right after I was talking about the journalistic part of things is uh-huh. one of the first projects I did right after that big project in Timbuktu was I decided to walk the Camino de Santiago and photograph it. And mm. now, of course, you hear about the the, the pilgrimage Santiago, mm-hmm. to Santiago de Compostela all the time. This was, I mean, it was already popular, but it was a bit, this was 2009. It wasn't like as known then. Uh-huh. But, you know, when I did that project, when I, that was the beginning of it all. And I started out doing that project as a documentary photographer. Oh, I wanted to okay. learn. I had my, my, my question, my documentary mm-hmm. question, which was why, <laughs> you know, in this secular age when uh, church attendance is declining, a quarter of a million people actually a year walking this ancient Catholic pilgrimage. Mm-hmm. And so, so I was like, I will, as a, you know, as a journalist, I will walk the Camino myself and and figure out an answer to this question, right? Mm. This news question. But what happened in the course of that pilgrimage is that as it went on, I just I took less and less pictures of people <laughs> and and more and more pictures of the landscape. Okay. And really what that pilgrimage became for me was it was it became a return actually back to the type of work I had started to do. Uh, mm-hmm. early on in my career as a photographer, where I'm much more interested about space and time and how I'm perceiving the objects and the lights in the world around me, and much less less about people, 
right? Mm-hmm. And part of that, and I think it's important to say this in, in our era with everything that's happening, I don't regret the detour I took into journalism, but it was really important to, at that point, let go of being the type of artist I thought I should be, you know, for mm-hmm. the good of the world and whatnot, and return <laughs> to being the artist I really wanted to be, which fundamentally I think is just as important for the good of the world and maybe much more right. so in some ways. <laughs> you know, I, I made a similar shift myself. I spent seven months in the Middle East photographing the first intifada. Wow. Before that, I was doing work in New York City. Uh, and, you know, this is way back in the 80s. So I would I would get wire releases, you know, and I would go out and photograph <laughs> nice. protests. A lot of them were around the UN, surprisingly, you know, not surprisingly. Um, but I would do protests and demonstrations and events and political rallies and all those things. And then I did the exchange program with uh, the School of Visual Arts and I went to the Middle East and I photographed the first intifada. And while I was there, I started photographing less of the conflict and more of the families at home and the landscape. And when I came back, I was done with photojournalism, basically. Right. Yeah. And, but, you know, when you're in that mindset of being a photojournalist, you think those are the most important photos in the world. And I don't know if you had this experience, but I was looking at some of the photos my friends were making and thinking, I don't understand that at all. I mean, I don't know why you think that's important. You know, I have something actually happening in my photograph. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> and then I, I, I mean, turned it's, around it's completely. Difficult. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. like... I, un- I understand the importance, right, of photojournalism. And with, in yeah. the world we live in, it is a bit like, if it wasn't photographed, maybe it didn't happen, so we don't have to pay attention to it. <laughs> so <laughs> having someone there witnessing it, right? Yes, it, absolutely. An event is important. Absolutely. When done properly, it, it yeah. is super important. Yes, absolutely. At the same time, at some point, I came to the conclusion that if I actually, if I really want to be transforming people's mentality, right, how they really like deep down, right? Not just their knowledge, mm-hmm. right? But their mentality, how they're really feeling about, in my case, the landscape, then actually photojournalism isn't the best tool at all. And, and I need to seriously go into, into art, into fine art. And, you know, the, the journey to, to the Glasgow School of Art, which I have to say, you know, I, I'm not, I don't want people to go to that school just because I say I went to it. It's, I'm not <laughs> actually recommending that school. Um, <laughs> although I do... It was really great to study in Scotland and to get out of the whole U.S. art world and photo world mm-hmm. mindset and be exposed to other ideas and other photographers. That was a, the right decision for me. But as a school, it's, it has, especially recently, it has a lot of uh, issues. Like it burned down for the second time while I was studying oh, wow. there and things like that. So we, <laughs> we don't have to go into that. But I just, okay. sometimes, you know, young photog- young artists are listening and you don't want them to be like, oh, I should... Right, I need to follow this path. Right, right, right. Yeah. 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 No, no. Um, I guess people could search why it burned down. But yeah. <laughs> I mean, we're talking, it's well, a, that, that's a whole we're talking arson we should... or it was just sort of falling apart? Uh, well, it had a really famous building built by Macintosh mm-hmm. and that burned down once in 2014. It was partly burned down and they were in the midst of a huge renovation. Okay. And it was about to be reopened after the renovation the year I was there. And then suddenly, right before, in just a couple of months before I graduated, it, um, it, it burned down again. And this time completely. And uh, wow. they don't know why. Okay. <laughs> All right. But so, it, but that, it was mean, highly disruptive, a, a, as you might imagine. Of, 
outside of incineration, um, was the was the program okay? Uh, no. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> no, no, that's fine. Let's not go into it. But no, no, um, I'm fine. I just want you know. I didn't want. I, I, I didn't want people to think we were saying don't go there because it might burn down. No, 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 no. That, okay. You can research it. There's a history of, of issues. But no problem. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We but can the move good on. thing is, yeah. and I specifically chose that program because it's an art program. Mm-hmm. And I did not apply to any of the photo programs in Europe or the US because I wanted to be surrounded by performance artists and printmakers and mm-hmm. painters and sculptors, which I was. And that was amazing and really opened my eyes to other ways of thinking about media and other ways of thinking about display and other ways of thinking about how your work can interact with, the, with space which um, which I hadn't before. And mm-hmm. that, that might not be as, it's a little bit evident in the book Traces of Time in, in the sequences I've made, right? The sequences that you see in the book, there are eight of them, are works in themselves. None of those pictures, even in, uh, on a wall, are meant to be viewed individually that right. are part you of the sequences. The, and, and in the book, it is laid out. As, as triptychs and they're meant to be seen together. Right? Exactly, these, these exactly. Right, right, so right. you see that a bit in the book and then in, in, in some of my, my works that aren't in the book, people can see mm-hmm. it on my website, you know, uh, I'm really moving beyond the single frame. In, right. in, in what I'm doing now, I've also done a lot of experimentations with murals and site-specific work in the last few years. And that's all coming out of having done my master's in an environment where I was surrounded with all different types of artists, which which was right. which was the amazing thing about about the about the program. Yeah, well, Traces of Time is your your latest book. Uh, you also have Vertigo and Tracking, and In the Shadow of the Valley was that also a book? I I didn't make that into a book. I I, oh, okay. I sort of debate. Maybe I will at some point, but that's right. not in a book. But all of these all of these works have have lives both as a book and both as installation art, right? Yes. 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 Okay. Well, actually, my first book, uh, or my first major book, was actually a d- that documentary book. was right. Was 333 Saints from the work in Timbuktu. And mm-hmm. I mentioned that just because it, that was an essential part of my journey as a bookmaker. Um, mm. And I did as I self-published. I've, I've always self-published so far. I'm not against publishing with, with a real publisher, <laughs> but so far that's what I've done. Is it is it more than self publishing? Do you actually have a press? Did you start your own? Well, because I've done a number. I've, I mean, a number of books now. I have in name. I have a press in name. So, oh, okay, but but and, they're and, all, but it's all your work. So, yeah, two collaborations. Oh, okay, okay. So I've done an, a collaboration with my brother Robert Huddleston, who's a poet. Oh, okay. And actually, I'm not. You you probably don't notice in the, unless you looked at my Instagram site. But there's a funny little side story to Traces of Time, which is actually it's. There are two books coming out of the same project. So Traces of Time, is I should probably introduce it. Traces of Time was shot uh, while I was on an artist residency in Brussels for about five weeks in 2021, in August and September. And I decided to, uh, the residency was on an amazing program run by the Villa and Payne Bogosian Foundation. And I decided at that time, I decided to spend my time almost every day walking in a nearby park. It was just, it was just a half a mile, maybe walk down from the residency. A garden, right? It's a, yeah. So it, 
it was founded, I think it's in the, I wrote this down, the 12th, the 1200s, the 13th yes. century, or maybe it was it, the 12th century. I looked it up. Yes. 12, 1201 or something 12, like that. Okay. Yeah. And, it, and it was founded by a Benedictine nun as an abbey, mm-hmm. right? So it had, it's a space, it was outside the city walls at that time, right? In the countryside. Um, but it's existed as a complex of gardens and buildings since then. Of course, it was decommissioned as a religious site during the revolution, the French Revolution. And now, the gardens that currently exist, I think they were set into place in the 18th century, although there have been major renovations in the early 20th century. And, and now so, it is a public space? It's a public space, yeah. Right, okay. And, and can you say the name? Because I'm not going to try to Yeah. <laughs> so it's called um, the Jardin de l'Abbaye de la Cambre. Good. So Jardin <laughs> being gardens in French. So the gardens of, the ab- uh, of la Cambre Abbey, essentially. Right. So still taking its name now from the original abbey, although it's, it's no longer an abbey, it's the buildings now, there is a church that's still operational. Oh, um, okay. But other than that, it's a geographic institute and an art school, actually. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then, and then the, but the, the gardens, it's a public park that co- consists of, of several garden areas around mm-hmm. this complex of buildings. Yeah. yeah. So every day I, I just walked it. And uh, over time, you know, summer, it's a, it's a I knew I, at that point in my work, 2021, I already knew that documenting in some form, you know, changes over time and, and changes of my motion through space, because I also consider myself a walking artist. Maybe that's something we can mm-hmm. discuss later. So really bringing in my motion and my temporal experience of a space into my work is, is essential. And I knew I wanted it to be part of that project. Well, we could talk about that now. You, you talk about the idea that, that, that places may have kind of radical change and, or subtle change. And the only way you really kind of notice a place changing is if you revisit, is if yes. you come back and you walk again. But it's not just that you're noticing the place is changing, you kind of noticing yourself changing as well, right? Yes, yes. Yeah. Yes. I mean, and, and one of my doubts, actually, when I went into this project was that it was summer. Because mm. if you think about landscape, right, and, and season, summer is a pretty static month, maybe even more static than winter. Well, if you have snowfall, winter can be dramatic. But so summer is a pretty static month. So I was like, what am I really going to get? Five months you know, October to the beginning of September. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's too early to have the fall foliage changing, right? Or dramatic, a dramatic change like that. But in retrospect, that, that limitation, seeming limitation was a blessing because it really allowed me to start to hone in, hone in my focus on what in my, I don't know if this is a real word, but what in my <laughs> mind, I started to call micro changes. Sounds good. Right? I think it sounds <laughs> yeah. great. <right>? Yeah. <laughs> so the, these could be uh, simple things like, I mean, I should back up because one of the things about this garden is that it seems to not change, not only because it's summer, but because there are all these gardeners who it's are constantly... Well, it's well-maintained and it's manicured, this very well-maintained. Because it, it has a history of being more of a, a private garden. So, yes, and, and, and yeah. it's a manicure... Uh, parts of it, large mm-hmm. parts of it, are a formal manicured garden, you know, box hedges right. and all of that. So... Something could happen. People could make a mess in the lawn and the next day that would be gone, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, So 
there's forces, powerful forces at work every day, <laughs> constantly making the space look nice and look the same. Mm -hmm. And so that even that even more, right, reduces the amount of obvious change happening. Although right. to a certain extent, if you're lucky and you can catch sort of the gardeners in the act, that also brings in a, 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 a potential change. So I started, mm. to, you know, I started to notice these things. You'd have a heavy rain. It would totally bring in tons of erosion along the paths. Uh, two days later, it, be the path was beautiful <laughs> and smooth again, right? <laughs> right. Uh, so right. there would be changes caused by that. Some of the changes were just, you know, very subtle things of, uh, uh, that would happen in the light. You know, one moment, the sun's out, so the shadows are strong. And two minutes yeah. later, the sun has gone behind the clouds. So the and shadows... And this is how your, your multi-panel pages are laid out to show exactly. these kind of these changes, right? Which... Which, which might be very obvious and might not be so obvious, but there's changes in light, maybe a, a change. I don't know if there's changes in season, but at least some of the, the flowers seem to have changed a little. The color a little, of the water yeah, they've changes. A little. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> right, so yeah, so there's, but then there are, are large individual images that are between those multi-panels uh, as well. And I think the book plays with the idea that there's a, a static quality to it, but then if you just spend enough time, there's a, these changes that you can notice. And the, the pictures use, you know, color and light, you know, as, as good descriptive tools to show that sort of temporal nature of nature <laughs> as well, right? Yeah. yeah. So a few points in there. Um, one is, yeah, the book is structured, which I know you... You haven't had it in your hand because Not the, the only, actual book, yes. right? It's, it's a, and this book is a handmade book. I mean, seriously, yes. handmade yes. limited edition. I glued, you know, like yes. and, all and of, also not inexpensive. Not inexpensive. That's right, because the only six copies of the world that's um, right. that I've made, you know, with so my I've only sweat seen it electronically. That's right. <laughs> this is this is a, a real art book here, right? Um, which, as I said, as, as I might. A little side, I learned all the skills to do that properly, archivally, beautifully mm -hmm. uh, during a workshop at the Center for Book Arts in New York a couple oh, years ago. Oh, that's great. Yeah, yeah just yeah, a shout yeah. out to them because that's a great institution. <laughs> so the book is is designed very specifically so that, the and, and it works because the, the, the people who've actually held it in their hand actually do this, which is always such a great thing. You know, you make mm. a book, hand it to someone, and then you, they act Oh, they with get to it, interact with it however they want. <laughs> but but to see them right. act the way you want is, and, you know, sort of see it, it's, it's, a, it's a great feeling. So the book is laid out with just the title at the beginning, then just the pictures, the these sequences of three to five photographs interspersed with one or two single images. And then at the end, there's a short statement. And yes, very short. Then, so yes. what people normally do is they, they look through it all then they read the statement which is nice and short so it encourages them to read it mm -hmm. and then they go back because and you know I I really put a lot of effort in my work in trying to not force my viewer but really encourage my viewer to think about what they're seeing so to think about the photograph or the photographs they're looking at in the same way they think about a text they'd read right or a poem they'd read Right. What is this actually telling me? I even think about some of my sequences as if I'm writing a sentence, you know, or mm -hmm. a paragraph even. They, there's a, a specific story in there. In there. And, and actually, you know, I read a lot of comics. <laughs> and I have since I was young. And, and comic books and comic book storytelling 
I, I oh. won't hide it. That's a big influence. So the, the, your influence <laughs> of the panels comes from the, oh, yes. <laughs> the graphic novels and the comic books. Yes. Oh, yes. So, you know, like, because if you're talking about telling a story with mm -hmm. pictures, right? And multiple pictures. What's the best example out there? The greatest <laughs> artist out there. This, this is the comic book artist. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, you mentioned, you know, a walking artist and that has, that is very present in your work from, from the beginning, from when you started with the pilgrimage. That's uh, right. You also mentioned that you are um, heavily influenced by romanticism, you know, artists like uh, Constable, I imagine, and uh, Jericho, um, or maybe I, I have the wrong period there. Well, I mean, I'd say later on, artists like that began to influence me. But both, how to say this, both people who, who, are, who call themselves walking artists, right? Mm -hmm. it's, there's, we have this funny habit <laughs> of going back in history and then labeling other writers and artists posthumously as walking artists. Oh, okay. <laughs> right? It's just because... The term walking artist, you know, it's, it's only been a term or a movement, mm -hmm. a self-identified movement in, in fairly recently. Now it's fairly well known. There's websites like the Walking Artist Network, uh, Walk, Listen, Create, a big hmm. online communities and offline communities of people more so in Western Europe than the US. But nonetheless, lots of people thinking about walking and not just walking, but what it means, what your body in space means about how you are thinking about the world, how you're perceiving mm -hmm. it. And if you're an artist or writer, how you're representing it. As you know, nowadays in the arts, thinking more deeply about your process, whatever that process is, is really important. And the walking artist movement is, is for sure one of that, part of that, should I say. But as I said, walking artists, we really like to go back into the past and in our particular media, look back and say, oh, they didn't call themselves a walking artist, but they're <laughs> definitely a walking artist. <laughs> and so the romantic movement is in Western history, I should say, you know, it's actually, especially in, in its literary history, the romantic artists were at the forefront of interacting with landscape in a way that is linked to how what became the walking artist movement. Uh, I mean, all you have to do is, is, is go and read some William Wordsworth. And it's like, <laughs> I think I should count someday, but I think like 90% of his poems in the first yeah. paragraph are like, I was on a walk. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? but, but it is it is about having that personal and emotional experience. Yes. But then also as an artist representing that in a way. Yeah. Um, so th thinking yeah. really, really deeply about how my body as, as a person, as an artist is interacting with the world. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons walking art became a movement in the 20th and 21st century is precisely because walking was no longer the obvious way of moving through the world. Right. Right. Maybe if you live in a city, but still, uh, public transportation develops in the course of the 20th century and all these other things. So in our era, those of us who really started to, it, it's, it's almost a, um, a retrospective movement in some ways. It's going back to an older way of being in the world, mm -hmm. you know, that's not the car, that's not the subway, that's not a bicycle, and thinking about what, what that really means or both meant and means even now about how I'm looking at the space around me, how I'm feeling about it, how I'm 
feeling it, and bringing all of those factors back into the work of art. Yeah, well, you know, the connection to what you just said and the garden first and then the park, which was more of a 19th century idea, uh, you know, the, the public park. Yes, um, well, was which is also... The escape. Right. Was a relief. Yeah. But, you know, the whole, the romantics and the whole park thing, you know, there's a reason why walking artists go back to the 19th century and really see our predecessors there. All right. these artists who took the park seriously, all these impressionists. Yes. Uh, yes. Right. Public parks were that's when they were being developed and that's yeah. when they became a real subject for art. Right. Right. And the, the garden and the park itself was a relief from this sort of ordered, constructed world. Exactly. Uh, in the same way that you're talking about walking as a relief from this sort of me mechanical world and way and transportation and all those things. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Walking art has actually really quite revolutionary roots. Those who've looked into it, it's a lot of walking artists have the data were instrumental surrealists, a situationalist international. They all and they all of these art movements. Oh, situationalist really international! Deeply. I haven't heard that. On your podcast yet? That's what happens, you know, when you go to art school. <laughs> I loved all those movements and periods in history that where these groups and some of them. Some of them, you know, wanted to be subversive by not being known. Yeah. And all these different But they movements. were, you yeah. know, yeah. they, all of those movements had a strong subversive mm -hmm. uh, angle. And their right. interest in questioning art, in thinking maybe a walk can be art, you know? I mean, if a urinal can be art, maybe a walk can be art. Why not? You know, and mm -hmm. anyway, that with World War One and World War Two, we've seen how you know, Western society has been messing things up a lot. We, maybe we should start to rethink things. I mean, this, this is all that's happening, right, right? In, in the arts of the early 20th century. And rethinking walking and that, you know, the origins of walking art is all part of that. Part yeah, of those well, movements. you know, so in thinking about the act of walking and making the work and then showing the work, either in a book or in an installation, you know, I, I think about Stieglitz's equivalence or the Impressionist idea of the experience of light and nature as opposed to the detail of light and nature, you know, for the viewer. Right. Um, well, how do you see that translating then? How does the walk translate to the work that gets shown without the experience of the walk? Right. My, I mean, my thinking on that, of course, is developed I, let's say let's let's call 2009 the origin <laughs> of me as a walking artist, right? Because that's when I took my first pilgrimage. Although I I didn't feel comfortable calling myself a walking artist until I'd say around 2018. Interestingly enough, but early on, what I noticed was the more I walked, my subject changed. So I I was noticing, for example, in the landscape. For, that first thing, right? Notice the landscape more than the people. Right. Uh, although I'm sure there are walking artists who notice people too. There's a lot of different types of us. Uh, notice the, the ground. Notice the texture of the earth. I'm noticing the texture of grasses. For me, a big part became really noticing and taking seriously vegetation hmm. as an important part of my subject matter. So, you know, a photograph didn't have, have to have some central built thing in it to be interesting. Maybe just vegetation, just grasses could be as interesting, right, as a monument. Um, and, and that's something which to me came from all these miles I've walked, 
right, is, is what I think is important in the landscape, whether it's a built landscape or a natural landscape, really shifted and maybe shifted to things that other people aren't thinking as much about if they haven't walked over 3,000 miles. So that shifted subject matter and what I'm noticing, that's much more subtle in my work, I'd say. And that was maybe the first five or six years that I was walking. And that was what was really coming through in my work. And I was still, but I was still a photographer whose aim was to make the single wonderful picture mm -hmm. at that time. Um, but the big change that has come more recently, which to my mind really has come out of the walking, is moving away from the single frame. Not, you know, throwing it out entirely, but moving away from it and thinking about my work at potential works as more than one photograph. Mm -hmm. um, because well, the book what, is that. At the book itself is yes. its own thing, right? It, it is. An yeah. entire book is. It is. Yeah. I mean, and every book is that to a certain extent, right? But you can highlight that more or less mm -hmm. as, you, as you put your right. books Some together. Some books still read as a kind of portfolio, right? Exactly. So, so yeah, one thing is to see the book as a whole, as the whole work. And then on a smaller scale to see these smaller works as of three, you know, three, four or five pictures as the work. Because, you know, think about it. When you walk, every single step you take is changing your view of what's around you. It's, uh, it is, goes right. all the way back to the basics of frame and vantage right. point. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas, you know, the, I mean... You have the old John Zarkowski exhibition, Windows and Mirrors. And, yes. Right? But I'm not, that's not me anymore. I'm not Windows <laughs> and Mirrors anymore. It's something else is happening, right? Uh -huh. Because it's not the single frame, the single square or rectangle or whatever, looking that's from a static viewpoint, whether it's you're on top of a mountain looking at one view. You know, I'm climbing up the mountain. <laughs> I'm seeing... <laughs> A thousand views as I climb up the mountain, as I, as I climb down the mountain. It sounds like you're describing almost, a, in some ways, a more cinematic experience. Well, that's interesting because I think a lot of people, and it's not like there haven't been artists who've come to this point and mm -hmm. come to this point of, say, frustration with the single frame, whether it's a drawing or painting a photograph. And I think a lot of them move into video, mm -hmm. actually. And probably the reason there are less people who've been exploring these multiple sequences and in some cases constellations with photography is precisely they've 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 all moved on <laughs> they're <laughs> yes. all making videos now i'm i just happen to be one of these people who i actually did you know when i studied journalism i did broadcast journalism and i learned how oh, to right. make videos of course and i learned <laughs> that i didn't really like making videos <laughs> <laughs> right well i mean within within your photos and as sequences and panels you are very much paying attention to the passage of time right yes. there's there is and not we're not just talking shutter speeds things like that we're talking about the way there might be something more ephemeral or phenomenal in the nature wind had moved things a certain way light and rain uh you know um paths shifted or, or altered a little bit and so this thing you're talking about, about, you know, less reliant on the, the single frame, more reliant on sort of a, a sequence or an idea or a project, uh, an installation, a book, is still within your frames as well, I think. Yes. Yes, and that's one reason I, I kept, in some cases, the single frames. Mm -hmm. um, and, I mean, one, one thing I'm learning more and more, and I, didn't, I haven't fully fleshed out this concept, but I really noticed it after I put, put the book together, 
is the brain, my brain, and I think other people's brains, something very, very different is happening when you're looking at a page that has a single photo on it versus when you're looking at a page that has more than one photo on it, especially Mm -hmm. more than one photo that's linked. It's an entirely different viewing experience. Oh, completely. I've always been a big fan of diptychs and triptychs in general because your brain tries, in some ways your brain is trying to make one image out of them. And in other ways, your brain is looking for the the details in them that make them stand next to each other. Yeah. And so you, you're trying to, you're building that narrative in your mind while you're looking at them. It's a, it, there's a, so the single frame can do that. The single frame can have the details and the connections to be made. The multiple frames kind of demands it. Yes, yes, (laughs) Yes. exactly. It demands it. And I think people, in fact, read the multiple frame more like they would read a painting. Mm -hmm. You know, your eye goes back and forth. You see this, you see that. You put the story together rather than just kind of inhaling it. Right. But I realize the single frames are important in the book because in a way it, it, that, that gives the brain a little bit of a rest too. No, no, I, I see these as rests when, when I'm looking at the, uh, when I'm imagining turning the pages. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> if it was in front of me, if I could get one of the six copies. <laughs> right. Yes. Well, speaking of, how, how do people uh, get these books? Uh, which are, you know, beautifully printed uh, by hand and, and stitched by hand and everything else by hand, right? Yeah. And glued and, yeah. So, so right now, the, the way to get the book is to contact me, which people mm-hmm. can find out on my website. And I should say there's only two left. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, uh, what two... about your previous books? Are those yeah. all gone too? Um, some, there are some left, yeah. There's some left. So have, have you ever considered doing... A more not not mass production, but a more producible, uh, you know, replicable book that people could order, maybe in a smaller size and a a smaller press or something like that. Yeah. So so there are a couple of things to say around that point. Mm-hmm. It was just coming back to a point I made at the beginning. The my early books, like the ones I did on Timbuk Two, were still self published, but they were Offset Press. Oh, okay. You know, okay. I did a whole Kickstarter campaigns for them, and mm-hmm. I did edition of five hundred and all of that. One reason I haven't done it in this case is because I know what it's like. <laughs> I, I know how much work it is and I don't want to do it myself anymore. So I'm perfectly happy on my own to, to make my special edition of Handmade Six Books. Mm-hmm. If the appropriate publisher approached me and right. wanted to do a offset edition of 500, and the terms were suitable, right? Mm-hmm. I would be really happy to work with someone to do that. So that's, that's not off the table. But right. I just don't, I've done that before myself. It's a huge amount of work. I don't want to get into it again. I should also say- I, So you're looking for a publisher. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe, I, yeah. I mean, I, I am to a certain extent. Like I'm well, not like- Kind of like everyone's looking for a publisher. <laughs> exactly. It's, it's more, I'm on the slow track of looking for a publisher, you might say. Um, but one thing I have done is that this, the photographs that make up this project actually have become two books. Mm. And the second book is, well, it's still limited edition because it's uh, it will be an edition of 100, but it's actually a collaboration. Oh. Because something that was going on at the same time as I'm taking all these photos is that I was also in deep discussion about the park and about what it meant to 
photograph at work at the park with an artist friend of mine. She does uh, calligraphic ink paintings. Her name is Mi Kunz. She lives in Brussels. And we decided to collaborate and do another project using, in fact, a lot of the same photos, but in, in a completely different manner. So, I mean, that book will be a bit more affordable. There are 100 copies. It includes both her paintings and my photographs. Oh, nice. Yeah. So it's a real collaborative yeah, work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's an artist's work, but two artists really bringing... It's, it's like a piece of music, which has, you know, two instruments rather than one voice. Um, and we'll be releasing that uh, in June, May, June. Oh, great. So it's, it's yeah. a fun... I mean... Over time, I've just thrown out a lot of the rules. <laughs> I've, I've thrown out the whole thing about uh-huh. you just having the single frame. You know, I've, I've right. thrown out the whole thing about only making one book for one project. <laughs> I mean, why not? That's, oh, yeah, no, I, I think well, that's artists. great. Just look at uh, Alejandro Cartagena's uh, Carpoolers, where I think there's been four versions of that book, and they're all very unique. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah, oh, why yes, not? Yeah. Why not? I'm really different. <laughs> like, like different edits and different photographs and different bindings, all kinds of yeah, everything. Wow. Yeah. yeah, but um, just before we before we go, you have to tell me where the the name of your your press your imprint comes oh. from. There's two names. Yeah, <laughs> where do they come from? Well, so so it's, so it it's is hyphenated. It's- Kyodai oh, yeah, Press, mm-hmm. and then a hyphen at Ble- Blind Cat Valentine LLC. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the second is my business name. I, you know, it's a bit oh, okay. at this point in time, I'm like, was that an error of my youth? <laughs> but if it was, it's now too hard to change. <laughs> blind Cat Valentine, where does that come <laughs> but from? I, ha- I had a cat, and she was blind, oh. and her name was oh. Valentine. And I, I thought it, I loved her, and I thought it sounded cool, kind of like an old jazz song. Yes, absolutely. You know, yeah. and as some of you know, if, if you make your business the same as your name or too close to your name, you can run into issues when people make right. mistakes writing checks and stuff. So I wanted something <laughs> different. I figured, I'm an artist, why not? One of those decisions from a few That's years great. ago, which I love it. Yeah. as you get older. The, the other part of it, the Kyodai Press, is it's actually Japanese. Kyodai means sibling in mm. Japanese. And I, I mentioned very briefly, but in university, I double majored in East Asian studies yes. and studio art. I spent a year abroad in Japan during university. And my second pilgrimage, in fact, was going back and spending 45 days walking 800 miles mm-hmm. around the island of Shikoku on the very famous Japanese pilgrimage. So Asian art, especially Japanese art and thinking and poetry, um, has always played a huge role in, in influencing me and hence choosing the name. My, my, actually, my absolute first book uh, was called Lost Things and it was a handmade book uh, and it was a collaboration with my brother who is a poet. So that right. was the origin right, of the press was this collaboration right. uh, with my sibling and mm-hmm. hence the Kyodai Press. So these, <laughs> I mean, these things are kind of legacy, right? Yes, and absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I keep them as part of sort of my own history, legacy history. And mm-hmm. then also, well, things like your business name just are really hard to change once you... <laughs> oh, no. Believe me, I know. Yes. <laughs> once you have it. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yep. Yep. Because, yeah, no, it's a lot of paperwork, too. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> well, this has been wonderful. Thank you. And so for folks who want to see the work, there'll be links to it in the show notes. Uh, but uh, thank you again. This has been great. 
No, thank you so much for inviting me. And I, I'm a huge fan of podcasts. Oh, good. And after learning <laughs> about your show, I'm a huge fan of your podcast. Well, thank you. So it's just such a fun experience. Ah, <laughs> oh, thanks. All right. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye. Real Photo Show is produced by me, Michael Chovan Dalton. Music by Matteo Chovan Dalton. You can find bonus content from the show on our YouTube channel. Just search for Real Photo Show. The podcast can be found on all your favorite podcast players. And please rate the show with all the stars available on your preferred player. 